hello everyone. Welcome to Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Latovsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And today we're going to be delving into a trio of movies that are the same movie. Kind of. Sort of. Uh, we're going to talk about a few things in this episode. Just a couple of things, really. Actually, yeah, that's right. It is really only a couple of things. <laughs> but it's sort of a few things. Yeah. One of my all-time favorite, I guess sort of our one of our all-time favorites at this point, is one of the landmark achievements in modern horror filmmaking, John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982, which I've always loved. But I think in recent years in particular, it's become more and more one of those go-to movies. And it fits very well into our general thought process for Ghouls in the House and for what we've talked about many times, which is in essence, and I didn't really think about this until just now, it really is another one of our Trapped in a House movies, essentially. Oh, for sure. Anything that's remote, anything that's contained where your lack of ability to escape what you're dealing with is limited by your location I think it, it appeals to both of us. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. And, and that's a major part of this, is if it's very well within that uh, structure, that premise that we love. Um, it's also just a stunning piece of work all around. And it's another one of those that I feel challenged by a bit in talking about it, because I know no matter what I say, I'll forget 12 other things I've always wanted to say about it. So i got to fight that desire to be completist about this. I'll never cover everything I want to say. But in doing that, we realized we were going to follow sort of the pattern we've also established quite a bit in our past Schools in the House episodes of tending to look at remakes and other imaginings of a particular story. And what better thing to do? There's going to be a lot of that, I think. I'm going to really have to fight the urge to giggle every <laughs> time one of us says the thing is with this just, thing. Yeah. What better thing to do than look at all of the variations of the thing? From the original 1951 film, Thing from Another World, to John Carpenter's remake, one of those movies that is the, uh, not the only, but one of the exceptions to the rule where people always say remakes can't be any good. Well, when you do what he did, it's extraordinary and it stands on its own. And then we also decided, yes, there's one other movie called The Thing. It's 2011's The Thing, also just called The Thing. But what was it was made as a direct prequel to the John Carpenter film. And uh, rather than say another thing or before that thing, they just called it the thing. And all three of these are adaptations, loose or otherwise, of what is considered one of the great classic science fiction short stories, which I must admit I have never read in its entirety. I care about the movies, the story itself, never been that much of an interest for me by John W. Campbell, uh, who goes there. And it's worth just briefly noting, before moving on to the stuff we really want to talk about, that although Who Goes There towers in the uh, sort of list of great science fiction literature, and Campbell himself is an icon, uh, a man who did more through his work in editing and shepherding other careers in science fiction than simply writing himself, 
But as the years have gone on, people have become much more painfully aware of just what an out-and-out horrible racist he was. And just like a generally bad human being. Yeah. Um, One of the little tidbits I read talked about how he felt that oversight and regulations were like destructive and that he thought they should just go ahead and allow people to take thalidomide if they wanted to, even if it meant that it was going to be dangerous or damaging to their children. Cause it's not like that for everyone. He also uh, got angry and wrote an op ed saying that you can't really prove that smoking leads to lung cancer. So Amongst his very, very, very bad takes on things, of which he has many, <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of which revolve around race and many of which revolve around his weird relationship with what he thinks science yeah. is. Well, he had like a he was one of those ones that had that general conception that certain races and colors of skin were inherently incapable of being as intelligent as other people. And he said, that's just science. And yet he managed to write, like, what people hold up as the standard of story. It's something you and I, I think, yeah. grapple with a lot. I, like, have grappled a lot with some of the books of my childhood and realizing that some of the people who wrote the things I absolutely love were just out-and-out out horrible well, people. Well, we like a lot of stuff that have derived in one fashion or another from H.P. Lovecraft. And I've read quite a bit of Lovecraft and wanted to read more, but Lovecraft is a horrible, horrible human being. Very bad. Also a huge racist and anti-Semite. And, mm -hmm. and it's like there's no denying that, but there's also no denying that the thoughts that came out of that man's mind established a, a subgenre so indelible and so impactful that we had to turn his name into an adjective. And like, how often does that happen? So, but then again, we're trapped in a world where all of history has been shaped by racists. So in a sense, we can't get away from that. And Best we can do is pull the ideas that we think are interesting or good and talk about their impact and not about necessarily the genius of the creator and more so conceptually the idea and where it goes. It's also worth noting, and I don't want to spend too much time on the story itself before we get to the films, where we'll be looking at all these themes anyway, but it's worth noting that the original story, which probably Carpenter's film comes closest to adapting in the, both the spirit and in details of the story, although there are differences, um, it's a story that essentially the key elements of all these variations, the key elements of this as an idea, as a motif, it's paranoia. It's fear that the person next to you under their skin is not the same as what they look like on the outside. Uh, it's the idea of assimilation and turning something into something inhuman that appears human. And what happens if you lose your identity? There's a lot of stuff in there where when you really start to look at it and think, wait a minute, from the perspective of someone who was a racist, it starts to make a lot of sense why he was grappling with a lot of these ideas. And kind of branching off of that, and I think this will be our, our last little John Campbell tidbit here, in researching for this and just sort of reading through some info about him as a person, I came across this review of a biography about him. 
And one of the tidbits that really jumped out for me is apparently the fact that his mom was a twin. So his mom and his aunt were identical twins. And apparently they thought it was funny to jokingly switch places at the end of the school day. And sometimes one would greet him when he came home and sometimes the other. And for them, it was hilarious. And for him, and I quote, it ended up contributing to Campbell's lifetime suspicion of anybody who wasn't himself. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, not knowing if the person you're looking at is, is the person on the inside that it is on the outside. He apparently sometimes didn't even know if his mom was his mom because it could have been his aunt. Although it wouldn't have been a stranger. But I guess when you're a kid, that, Still that a different person. could really mess with you. And again, um, I don't want to delve too much further into him, but like we've talked, we had this conversation, we've had this conversation about some other people recently too, the degree to which there are people you can just condemn as wholly evil. And then those where you can also say, yes, they're terrible, but you can also see how they were shaped. And maybe a, there's something too. Why, why did Campbell become the person he became? Well, it certainly sounds like there was abuse. It was emotional abuse of him. You can see how someone is terrible and also pity them at the same time, I right. think, is what we've kind of come down to. That doesn't erase anything, but it's okay to feel bad for elements of their life. You'll never be able to shoo our captain southward with his heart wrapped around the North Pole. That'll do, Mr. McPherson. What's going on at the North Pole? Some scientists are holding a convention up there. Looking for polar bear tails. Ever hear of Dr. Carrington? The fellow who was at Bikini? The same. Well, they're holding about 2,000 miles north of here, a whole bunch. Botanists, physicists, electronic... Including a pinup girl. Very interesting type, too. Very. Captain Henry can give you any data you want on her. Ken, you probably shouldn't have said that. You know how the captain read the detector Someday I hope to have a navigator and a co-pilot who are at least dry behind the ears. Oh, Captain. <laughs> you mail order it. Henry, report to General Fogarty's quarters at once, please. Well, let's move on to the first film then. Yeah. Um, the Thing from Another World is one of the other joys of doing this, because we do this quite a lot, is getting to introduce one another to things we've never seen, and you would never seen The Thing from Another World. One of the most iconic most important landmarks in the history of science fiction film. I want to give a shout out to a good friend of ours and colleague, Stephen Warren Hill, who is the co-author of Red, White, and Who, one of the books we published through ATB Publishing about the history of Doctor Who in America. But Stephen also wrote uh, a pair of books uh, called Silver Scream about the many horror and th horror films and thrillers that he felt were formative at the beginning of the 20th century, and it's like a chronological look. It's extraordinary stuff. He chose The Thing from Another World as the turning point from the horror era that Universal dominated in world pre-World War II and then right up post-World War II. And then as we move into the Atomic Era and the Cold War, we transition to science fiction as the genre that becomes the basis for exploring fear because now it's fear based on science and the future rather than the fear of all the other things that horror had explored prior and the thing from another world is both it's a horror film it's a science fiction film it is the template for many other aliens invading earth kind of movies uh it has aspects of many other things that come out of that era including invasion from the body snatchers and a lot of other stuff uh it features james arness as the main single alien threat in the film in a very Frankenstein's monster kind of design. Another aspect of that transition that I think is relevant 
His look is very much a sci-fi version of the universal Boris Karloff, Frankenstein's monster. And of course, we already know that just a few years later, he was going to appear as FBI agent uh, Robert Graham in Them. So these are his two iconic roles. But The Thing from Another World is an extraordinary piece of work. It's a classic. It's not just a classic science fiction film. It's a great movie uh, with extraordinary performances and one of the best parts about it. Dialogue that is so crisp, so the pacing of it so amazing, and uh, produced by Howard Hawks, directed by Christian Nyby, Hawks's editor, who is doing his directorial debut. And as we'll talk about maybe a little bit more later, there's a lot of controversy about who actually directed the film. I'm always fascinated with stories like that of who directed it, who didn't direct it. And I guess I always want to err on the side of the person who they say directed it because sometimes it just seems like that can be so dismissive of somebody. I think a lot of times when there are these arguments about who directed what, Mm -hmm. it's like nobody trusts that the person who was this first time attempt at directing or it's the first time they've had a major opportunity. Nobody seems to trust their ability to do it. That surely it had to be the seasoned person who did it. It had to be, you know, the person with the history of it. And while maybe sometimes it's true that they assisted, maybe they gave more feedback on the set than they would Otherwise, if somebody else had just been hired by the producer to direct because they're friends or because it's a protege or whatever it might be, I still think, you know, at some point, every director has a first thing that they directed. So maybe this really is somebody who had that kind of ability. And maybe it's not. I don't know. But I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. And... As somebody who was coming into this movie for the first time, mm-hmm. never having seen it except for, you know, the occasional screens of it that show up in Halloween that I've yes. seen many times. That's right. It's really well made. I mean, it, it's an extraordinary movie. The way that it is filmed, regardless of who did it, is really well done. And the actors all do an extraordinary job. It just feels like such a fun ride to be on from start to finish. The main argument that usually comes up about that whole director thing is what I was mentioning before. One of the like sparkling aspects of this film is the dialogue. The byplay between all of these characters is a level of realism that seems alien appropriately enough for the time and usually attributed to producer Howard Hawks, who was very good at doing that kind of repartee and romantic comedies. Well, he did just about everything, but also includes a woman in a lead role that talking about turning names into adjectives is usually referred to as one of his Hawksian women. And that overlapping dialogue and that fast rhythm is so distinctly him that people felt, well, could it have been Nyby and What's fascinating is, depending on who you ask in that on that set, some of them said Hawks was there, Hawks was directing, Nyby was directing. Nyby himself was on the record decades later as saying, you don't think I directed the thing I'm credited with directing? And he said, you don't think I studied the guy that I revered, who was my mentor, that I wouldn't know how to do? So again, 
whatever it is, the result, though, is it's a standout at a time where acting and character building and dialogue in particular was so specific and stilted, sometimes in a way that was still pleasing, but that wasn't real. And this just sounds like you're in a room with people. Conversations are going on over. Sometimes it's actually hard to follow entirely what people are saying because it's so realistic with people. I'm not waiting for the guy in front of the room to talk. I'm talking too. And it's just fantastic. Her character's going to have to wait. I want to talk to you. I want to what about? It's a downright dirty trick you played on me. Now, Pat, don't lose your temper. Why did you do it? Just tell me why. Well, uh, your legs aren't very pretty, and well, I didn't... You have to write it on a note and put it on my chest. Other people got up before I did. I'm sorry, Pat. I really didn't six people read that note before I woke up. Now the whole Air Force is laughing at me. Not so loud. They'll hear you. They probably already heard. The only place it hasn't been is on a billboard. Ooh, I didn't know you had such a nasty temper. <laughs> now, Pat, just careful. Now, take it easy. And especially in a high-stress situation where everybody's going to have an idea about how to deal with it, it's not going to work like a stage play where everyone waits for the moment to present their line. Like, reality works in a way where everybody is just going to try to frantically throw in their thought at the moment they have it. And there's always going to be multiple conversations going on in a room the person who is leading the charge in anything is always going to be talking to multiple people coming into the room, trying to sort out different aspects of it. So it makes it feel very real, like you're watching something that's happening instead of watching a movie that's an imagining of something that could happen. And we should step back, I guess, and say that uh, this is set at the North Pole. Keep that in mind, folks, because there is something very interesting about the transition from one version of the thing to another version of the thing. But this is at the North Pole. We're at a research base where they discover the buried remains of a flying saucer and at least one occupant. The saucer doesn't make it through their attempts to extract it, but the occupant does, who turns out to be, as one character refers to him, an intellectual carrot. The mind boggles. Shouldn't. Imagine how strange it would have seemed during the Pliocene age to forecast that worms, fish, lizards that crawled over the earth were going to evolve into us. Look, On the planet from which our visitor came, vegetable life underwent an evolution similar to that of our own animal life, which would account for the superiority of its brain. Dr. Its development was not handicapped by emotional or sexual factors. Dr. Carrington, you're a man who won the Nobel Prize. You've received every kind of international kudos a scientist can attain. If you were for sale, I could get a million bucks for you from any foreign government. I'm not, therefore, going to stick my neck out and say that you're stuffed absolutely clean full of wild blueberry muffins. <laughs> but I promise you, my readers are going to think so. He is a plant-vegetable-based creature that has evolved on his planet the way we evolved from mammals. And he seems hell-bent on annihilating everybody on the base and presumably trying to escape out into the world. But it is interesting to note that, unlike what we'll get to later, he doesn't necessarily... He doesn't behave in the way that people that know the other films behave. He's a self-contained being. He appears to be able to replicate, if you were to cut him up and grow other parts of him, he would replicate other ones. And there's the implication that an army of these creatures could be grown. And that he has some kind of seed pods, like, embedded in his fingers or in his skin that he could then plant to become sort of like an asexual reproduction of yeah. self. 
But in order to fuel that, they have the premise here that the thing requires blood. And it doesn't seem to matter whether it's human or animal. Um, we'll go after their dogs. We'll go after the people mm -hmm. um, in very, you know, sort of 1951 fashion. Whatever gore might be happening happens off screen. Yeah. And it's just alluded to so that you know the horrors of what happened in another room. So he's essentially a science fiction version of a vampire. Yeah. It's a sci-fi take on a vampire from another planet. And key to understanding this is that although the original short story involved a creature that could actually assume the appearance of other human beings and assimilate them and take their identities there's none of that in the thing from another world they they like the story but the the adaptation of who goes there this is extremely loose adaptation uh, it was by charles Lederer. And apparently Howard Hawks and Ben Hecht, uh, another great screenwriter of the era, apparently worked on it. But the idea was they liked some of the bits and pieces of Who Goes There, but they took it far afield of that and created very much their own version of the story that also adds at least one strong female character into a cast that in the original story was all men and creates sort of the central relationship that's one of the great driving forces in the movie and one of the great sources of humor through all of it because we have our two leads margaret sheridan who didn't have an extensive career uh this is the thing she's most known for as nikki nicholson and as our lead hero kenneth toby who will become pretty much after this one of the great icons of sci-fi because he also was in the came from beneath the sea he's in beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms and then many years later, he's in that little group that Joe Dante and John Landis and all the guys that grew up with his movies do, where they're always casting Dick Miller and people in their movies. Kenneth Toby turns up in tons of John Landis and Joe Dante movies. Um, he's in Blues Brothers. I always remember him in Blues Brothers. Use of unnecessary violence in the apprehension of the Blues Brothers has been approved. One of the last things he ever did, the last real professional film role he ever had, was as an uncredited hologram priest in Hellraiser Bloodline. <laughs> it's his last appearance on film, oh, really. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. But so those two have this instant thing where apparently they had an encounter at some point in the past. It was a little bit contentious, but there's clearly a lot of sexual tension between the two of them where they're like fighting, but they really want to get together. And that part runs very nicely and sweetly through the entire movie as there are two leads. But also, it's not quite structured like that. It's not like, here's our two romantic leads and everybody else. It's an ensemble piece where you feel like you get to know a little bit about everybody, and, and you know them as people. Scotty, the reporter, who really wants to get his story out. You know, uh, Captain Henry's Kenneth Toby, his two sidekicks who are constantly needling him, and I love that relationship. We talked about how we figured they were in the war together, they have a history. It's and... kind of nice that they're all so real in that when you watch science fiction movies in particular of that era, military men tend to be portrayed as either just complete buffoons who are like going science and like <laughs> yelling at scientists or the other end of it, them 
believing the scientists, but also just being so button up and so mm-hmm. just, I guess, proper and by the book, very like idealized what a military general is as like a concept, but not a person. And these are all people where you get the impression that all of these characters as they're written are based off of guys that they knew and as they're being played are also based off of either guys they knew or their own experiences. Just the fact that this is still in such close proximity to World War II they're all sort of talking about things they've been through together, including the reporter who by all accounts was either a war reporter or he fought in a regiment with them. And after the war went into journalism as opposed to staying in the military, but either way they all have a combat history together. And it's sort of like they have this shared trauma that gives them a familiarity with each other. I wonder if that kind of explains one of the things you brought up while watching it that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounded like you were bringing it up, maybe not like as an overt criticism, but just as like a, an observation, but maybe that kind of explains it. You said at one point, like sort of around the third act, you said none of them really seem like they're taking this as seriously as you would expect you know, they're like making plans to stop this creature, particularly by the time they come up with the idea to electrify the hallway and everything. You're like, they all don't really because they, they're constantly joking throughout. There's there's always by play going on. There's the running gag with Dewey Martin's character where he'll give Kenneth Toby an idea by giving by by then saying, I think you're right, Captain. That way it's it like the captain's always right kind of thing, mm-hmm. except he knows he's doing that and keeps telling him, don't tell me I'm right. That. There's always the humor, but maybe it's the idea that as insane as this experience is with an alien being, they're used to so much combat that for them, it's like, all right, we locked into what we do when we're doing this, and humor's an escape valve for that. Yeah, it very well might be, and it certainly, I get a vibe with them that you would later see in something like MASH. Yeah. Yeah, where, I, can see that. I mean, there are times where you're watching MASH where they really are like in the midst of serious conflict or they're dealing with a very complicated life or death surgery. And then you've got the rest of MASH mm-hmm. um, where everything is just a lark. And I, I do think that maybe both these ideas sort of show you. Again, probably a slightly more sanitized version, but a version of what camaraderie is or could be amongst a group like that that's had that kind of shared experience. And also the two main elements of our couple, Nikki and Captain Hendry, who everybody just calls Pat. Everybody's just yeah. calling him <laughs> Pat. They, they rarely call him Captain. They just call him Pat, which I, I think is an interesting touch. But the two of them clearly are not that interested in, like, the rules of societal propriety. Like, you say you get the impression they had, like, a run-in previously. I got the impression they slept together. Yeah, I don't know how far it went, but it seems like I at mean, least one night. I mean, you said when I woke up in the morning, you were gone. Yeah, it's at least the one night. So, so yeah. I mean, they at least spent night together in Alaska. And then he's like, where'd you go? She's like, I had to go back to work. <laughs> she's like, I had to get back up to the North Pole. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, wake you up? You're so handsy. <laughs> so, I mean, the two of them 
it's very it's pretty racy for the time it's too pretty racy yeah you know they they decide they're gonna have a little date while he's up there before everything goes bonkers and she's like don't want you getting handsy again so she ties him to a chair yeah and it's like feeding him liquor just standing there <laughs> there's some real fetishy stuff going on with the two of them it's very amusing and very endearing as yeah. well because the thing is you don't ever get the impression that either of them is trying to take advantage of the other i love the fact that she laughs at basically everything he says but and not in a hurtful way it's mm-hmm. just like she's just so delighted by the interplay that she's enjoying every second of it and he had he plays the role of being the gruff guy like i don't know what you're talking about but he's he's part of it he knows yeah, yeah. so it's it's very refreshing to see it's not the kind of thing you see as often in a movie like that. It's normally every, I mean, I just keep going back to buttoned up, but everybody's always just so proper. It's very evolved for the time. And I'm really, any time, really, I'm really surprised. I'd never seen it up until now. I guess mm. I just never thought to do it. Cause I'd seen John Carpenter as the thing and I loved it and I knew it wasn't really the same movie. And I always kind of got that received wisdom thing of, well, the Carpenter version is better. So if you just watch that, it's okay. And it's different. That's like a they hard sh- They argument. share a name. Yeah. And they share a, sort of a general concept. But they're two very different movies. Very and different. both do an equally good job of their version of the movie. There's a whole bunch of things in my head I wanted to cover. Like, there's the cliche about sci-fi movies at the time were either science is the savior or the doom and particularly in the atomic age there was that fear what could science do and we have what i love about this movie is both are done like usually a movie picks a side you know either science is the problem or science is the answer but it's rarely so crystal clear on both and in this it really is both because in dr carrington Robert Cornthwaite, another always reliable character actor to be a little weasel. Uh, Dr. Carrington is one of those like classic mad scientist types, not in the Frankenstein mold, but more in the sort of, there's button down. But like in that idea that he believes he's going to be the one to figure out. He's always, he's the same kind of character that appears in every movie who thinks they're going to be the one to get the villain to do what they want because they're going to be friends with them. And it never works. And, um, and every time I see this, I'm amazed at how things work out with Carrington. I've always, I always remember it differently. But he's very much the standard. Science is evil. He's trying. He actually tries to start growing other ones. It's like he's going to cause the problem. And he's also very Nazi-like in his demeanor and and physical look. So it very sells the idea that he's talking about. You know, this carrot guy is like a superior being. But on the other hand, you have the other scientists who fight against him. And I think my main argument also is that in the end, it is, as Scotty says, an arc of electricity that serves as the solution. So in essence, the purest idea of modern science, electricity, is the answer to saving humanity. So it is both a threat and a hope in the same, th- same time. I also find, at least from a modern perspective, I find it fascinating watching the other scientists try to sort of explain his behavior 
to the military men. And she really tries to stand it. up for him. Yeah. And basically say, you know, he, he really is a genius. He's got a Nobel. He hasn't slept in days since this all started and he's exhausted. He's not quite thinking right. You know, truly, he's just so dedicated to science that he can't let this opportunity for science pass him by. And it's like he is growing vampire alien plants in a closet using the blood plasma that should be used on the guy who's injured. And they're like, where'd all the plasma go that we brought? Why are we helping this guy out with a live donor? Where's the plasma? And they're like, maybe it's maybe feeding plants in a closet. Maybe even like they're just, they're special. They're they're the thing. It's the thing. We're growing the thing. It's in a closet. It's like they cave pretty quickly when he's like, what is going on? And they're just kind of doing the head nod where Mm -hmm. they're just like, check over there. But... It's fascinating because it's still the kind of thing that people do when somebody is a toxic personality, but also extraordinarily good at what they do. It's like all of these excuses that explain away the toxicity because they're a great scientist Mm -hmm. or, you know, a great artist or whatever it might be. And, you know, I guess you could even apply the same to Campbell himself as you're looking through this idea of, you know, but he's come up with these great ideas and he was like also a terrible human being. And so it's an interesting element to it. And I do think that a lot of the other scientists involved in this whole plot are really on the fence about what to do. It's like they don't want to say no to him because he is their scientific ideal But they also can recognize that it is a very bad idea that has already, at the point when we're seeing what the idea is, led to two scientists getting hung upside down and drained of all their blood. So the rest of them, I guess maybe you're thinking about the fact that they could have been the scientists hung upside down in the greenhouse, or maybe they're not. I don't know. I think there's also, it's worth noting that although this version of things gets rid of what then later becomes the centerpiece of other adaptations of the story, the idea of assimilation and and imitation leading to paranoia and fear, there's a more subtle version of paranoia at work here, not just in the idea that there's a stalking alien that they can't always locate. But in the tension with Cornthwaite's Dr. Carrington and them, there's the paranoia of there's there's an enemy within and it's not the carrot guy. It's the scientists that we're depending on. So there's that aspect of it, too. They're still distrusting each other. And right up to the end, too, because he's the one who sabotages the generator yeah. that produces the electricity that they need in order to combat this alien being that is trying to suck them dry. And his solution is to like turn off the generator and then just come flailing down the hallway being like, Hey guy, like these people don't understand you. They want to kill you. I'm your friend. And if you've ever seen a movie, (laughs) any movie, any movie, uh, I think you can probably imagine a Jerry Lewis movie. What happens next, which is, The alien just kind of looks at him for half a second, like, huh? (laughs) And then just, like, backhands him out of the way. Like, he's like, your blood isn't even worth it, guy. Like, just get out of my way. Like, I I got stuff to do. It just feels so right in that moment for him, not necessarily to get eaten, 
or killed or destroyed. It's just for him to just get swatted away as completely insignificant and not even worth the time of this creature that he thinks is going to be like the end all and be all of scientific knowledge. It's also worth bringing up another aspect of it, which is the design of the thing. He grew up at a certain time. Images of James Arness as the thing in that makeup were in every one of the coffee table books we all read or got out of the library. And you never really see him clearly in the movie. There are only a couple of shots in the entire film where you get... Actually, the scene where Carrington's trying to talk to him is one of the only times you really get a sustained look at him for mm-hmm. like a minute. And if and it was like a greenish hue in any of the tinted photos you see of him. And he's got like these thorns on his knuckles. A great design, very minimalist kind of design, really. Because he's mainly just wearing like a almost Michael Myers-esque kind of like jumpsuit kind of thing. He's got a onesie on. Yeah, and... Uh, but you don't see him. And and part of that, I would I would say, is also part of the strength of the film where too many movies that may equally be as good in character and storytelling and many others maybe not so much in the slew of 50s B sci-fi would put their stuff front and center. And, you know, in a way you could say kudos for the bravery to say we want to put our monster up front or we're going to shine the light on it. But in choosing to keep him in the dark most of the time, I really think, although I don't always agree with this, it's a great choice to say we're never going to let you get a totally clear view and that will enhance the horror, which is all the more interesting, too, as uh, a contrast to the next film that says we're going to show you everything, including things you've never seen. But in this one, lighting is such a big part of it. There's the darkness and then there's two things that always hit me every time I see it, which is the fire scene where they light him up in that room and it's really, everything's burning around the actors and everything, I think is stunning. And it's one of the many bits and pieces that Carpenter tried to recreate visually as one of his nods. And then the scene at the end where he's caught by the electricity and twisting back and forth as the arcs of electricity are hitting him and lighting him up and basically shrinking him down to nothing is a beautiful shot. And apart from that, keep him in shadows. Another one I also like, the one of the one of the things that I think taught an entire generation of filmmakers how you do a jump scare is the scene where Kenneth Toby's right at the door, talking casually to someone one second, and then opens the door and he's right there. And he has to slam the door. It's like you're not quite ready for him to be there yet. You figure, oh, we'll try a few doors first. Nope. And it's a great example. That's how you scare the hell out of people. I mean, I don't think... In the end, I don't find it to be a very scary film. I think it's atmospheric. I think probably it, scary if you're younger, if you're a kid. Yeah, maybe. Can, yeah, it like almost pushes it in the category of sci-fi thriller to me, in, rather than horror. But I also think part of that is simply because all of the like horror elements take place off screen. Um, yeah, wouldn't it be something? Just a single shot of the two guys hanging upside down in, like, the greenhouse would be really jarring. The closest you get is a couple of dead dogs. Yeah. I still think it's just a phenomenal piece of work. And I'd still feel comfortable calling it a horror movie because it still is trying to instill this fear. And certainly, especially then, that whole fear of the other 
we're getting into Red Scare territory. Absolutely. And, you know, worrying about communism, worrying about invasion. Like, they were worrying about invasion from the north from Russia, which is right. why they were out there in the first place, just kind of... Yeah, we get that mention early on, that there's a lot of Soviet activity around. Yeah. yeah, so that's why they had the military in Alaska, and we still have military in Alaska to this day. It reminds me also another movie that I'd argue might be, I think I could be persuaded to say it is in fact superior to the thing. Same year as Day the Earth Stood Still. There's a scene in the boarding house where they're all talking about where the alien man came from, and they're saying he came from a different planet. Why doesn't he come out in the open? Yeah, like that heater fellow says. What's he up to? Maybe he's afraid. He's afraid. <laughs> well, after all, he was shot the minute he landed here. I was just wondering what I would do. Well, perhaps before deciding on a course of action, you'd want to know more about the people here. To orient yourself in a strange environment. There's nothing strange about Washington, Mr. Carpenter. A person from another planet might disagree with you. Well, if you want my opinion, he comes from right here on Earth. And you know where I mean. And and it's like they're right in the film they're talking about. We're all terrified the communists are going to show up. And nothing's changed. Not really. <laughs> and, and the thing is, we talked about, obviously we're going to move on to Carpenter. There's a great deal of this movie that influences a lot of his career, not just the fact that he makes a version of the thing, but that the thing turns up, as you already mentioned, in Halloween as part of the, the marathon that night. And also, one of the most memorable speeches in sci-fi film history is Scotty delivering his report at the end and doing the thing about, before I start bringing people up to tell the story, I want to tell you, keep watching the skies and warning everybody, watch the skies which Carpenter paid homage to in another movie we did, uh, The Fog, where Adrienne Barbeau ends her broadcast that night with, you know, look out across the water and keep looking for the fog. So this movie was a huge influence on his entire early career and his thought process for telling stories. And you could also just say, I mean, as we sort of move into the next version of the thing where I think this idea is heightened, but this whole fear of the other and mistrust of other people is just such an inherently human thing that there's really no way it seems to completely extricate that from the human experience because it just keeps showing up again and again and again in different forms throughout history. And it's something where in this movie, there's the fear of the thing, the other. There's the fear and the mistrust of the two groups of people, the other. But it, it certainly, that feeling gets heightened dramatically as you move into the, the 80s. I'd add one other term, too, and one that came up quite a bit when I was really trying to bring together all my thoughts about the zombie genre in, in Journey of the Living Dead, is all these stories also deal with aspects of the uncanny valley idea. The idea that you're looking at something that is human, and it's slightly different, because the idea of the Uncanny Valley usually is you can sort of tell something's wrong. In in the case of the James R. Ness thing and the thing from another world, that's there. In the case of the thing 82 and, and on, when you're seeing them after it's successful, it would be a perfect copy. So it's really disturbing. You wouldn't even have a visual cue. But if we're moving on... I just want to throw in a couple other things that I wanted to make sure I noted for people that are fans of 
old character actors and the history of these kind of things, it's worth noting that The Thing from Another World is one of those rare occasions where you get to see noted prolific voice actor Paul Frees on camera as a character. And interestingly, his character name is Dr. Voorhees, spelled exactly the same way. So if you like, The Thing from Another World is in the Friday 13th universe, and Dr. Voorhees, maybe he's Pamela's father? I don't know. Would that work? I guess. I, he could be her first husband. That's right, because that's right, because it starts in the fifties. Yeah, first we're, we're talking timing here. He just left her and went to the North Pole to be a scientist, and she was stuck with Jason. We all know how that went. Yeah, he wasn't a very good swimmer. And and one last thing is another of the doctors. If you see it and you've never seen it before, but you are a fan of the Marx Brothers and their extended history, you might recognize George Fenneman who was Groucho Marx's long-suffering announcer and sidekick on the You Bet Your Life show. And now, before giving you the details of the battle, I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies. We already talked about the fact that this is one of our go-tos. I, I have great respect for The Thing from Another World. We've talked already a lot about the things we like about it. But it's also not one I necessarily feel like, oh, I, I could revisit that over and over and over. I like seeing it again. But The Thing from 1982, John Carpenter's The Thing, I can watch that almost any time. And it's one of those things we've talked about before where we talk about how a lot of people probably think how weird that is, that these are our comfort food films, but The Thing is one of them. It may be one of the movies I think is as close to perfect as any movie I love in almost every way. Visually, the music, Ennio Marconi doing uh, like a John Carpenter-esque score that instantly envelops you in the reality of the movie the second it starts. The cast to to a person to ever, down to the every single role is perfect. I can't think of many things, and maybe it'll come up. There might be one or two things that that I don't like, or that I would say, "Oh, here's a bit I would cut." But usually, I have that in my head. Not so much. This is just a stunning piece of work. I would say if we're talking flaws were there any flaws in anything or the character development or the story is that i still now after seeing this i don't know how many times i'm not sure what any of them were actually doing in <laughs> antarctica by the way we're in antarctica now we we went to the other side of the earth we're in the south pole and now in, in 1982 thing yep. and i know that it has to be some kind of research post you know, it's the U.S. research post, and as we see, like, other countries have their own research posts nearby. But I'm not sure what they did except drink and, like, razz each other, at least until the thing showed up. 
like I, I'm not sure what their mission was exactly being there, but they all just seem to sit around. Like there's just all these scenes of them sitting around in the common room, sitting around in their bedroom watching old game shows and getting high. It's like our hero, literally, I don't think I saw him drink anything hydrating the entire time. It's all whiskey and beer. Yeah. So Usually at the same time. Yeah. I'm not sure what they do. I'm not sure that it matters. But as a viewer who now has seen things from another world where it's clear they are doing science there (laughs) at the North Pole... And they show you some of the scientific research they're doing before the thing shows up. So you get an idea of why they're there and what the group is and why it may be necessary to have both military and scientists together. In this one, I don't know. I get the feeling it's just like they drew the short straw and so they're in Antarctica. It's true that you don't get a sense of, you don't even get a clear sense, except for the couple characters that you know are scientifically oriented or doctors, where the division is. Like, McCready is obviously the the pilot and not likely to be involved in much else except being part of the muscle, really, of the group. Mm -hmm. I think one thing you mentioned was Knowles doesn't, T.K. Carter's character, he seems to be the kitchen guy and the cook, but maybe not much else. Maybe he also does some, like, maintenance or management stuff which you might argue has an unfortunate, potentially racist angle to it. If it weren't the fact you also have Childs there. and now, Oh, that's another thing, by the way, is that here in this movie, all men, which does go back, and if I remember correctly, and I've seen the documentary on the classic DVD release of this about as many times as the movie, almost as many, and it's notable that the documentary runs longer than the film. It's one of those kind of <laughs> things. But it's just such an amazing production to hear everyone talk about doing. They had such a wonderful time doing it. And part of the thing Carpenter did was make sure they got them all up there ahead of time so they could spend time together and get really in sync before shooting. So they were already a group. He wanted to go back to the idea of it's all men, which... If Again, if you want to say as a flaw, it feels like arguably you could say that's a step back from where we were in the original. But I, I'm, I, I feel bad about that, but I am going to still stick to the fact that I still think this movie is so, so superb in almost every way. I can't really blame it for that so much. Would it be better that way? Maybe. But it's just such a phenomenal piece of work with everybody seeming to perf- perfectly fit their roles. That uh, until recently, really, I never thought of that as a as a flaw. I mean, it would just offer a different dynamic. And I don't know if either dynamic would be better or worse. It would just be different. You're just adding another element into it of not only then being about trusting other people, but also if you bring gender dynamics into it, this the fact of like, are they going to feel some kind of like reflex towards chivalry and like, do you try to protect women? I mean, they do in the original a sense where she wants to be up there helping with military guys right then. And he's like, I appreciate it, but get in the generator room with everybody else because this is not your expertise. Um, And that's valid because it is not. And so he appreciates her willingness to help, but also knows the limitations of what she's able to do. Mm -hmm. And 
in this one, I don't know. With this set of characters, they are definitely different in terms of the character traits than the ones we're working with mm-hmm. in the 51 version. Partially, I think, just because it's 30 years of difference in making them. But also, it's just a different group of people. So, I mean, you introduce women into that dynamic. I don't know how it changes the movie, if it's better or worse. I think it just gives different options for conveying the themes. I wanted to get to, I realized one point I was starting to get to before, originally had in mind before, was you talking about like the lack of really getting a sense of what they're doing there. And although I don't think this was deliberate or a choice, and I remember like Carpenter talking about this, it might be a way to look at it that, in a sense, I've always gotten the feeling like they're already at a low ebb when the movie starts. Like, they seem tired already. They're like, he's he's pouring booze right into his computer. And how's that help anybody? Like, isn't he going to want to play chess again? But he's already, and it's just starting winter because we get that line at the beginning. Um it does feel like maybe this is a group that have already been there too long. And maybe you could argue that's a, if not a plot point, a good like additional character motivation factor mm. here that maybe these guys are so burned out already. It makes them even more susceptible to falling into what happens because they are so ready to be at each other's throat. They don't really fight until everything starts. They're primed for it. But they're ready. Yeah, and maybe that's part of the point. I could see that. I'd also still argue, regardless of whether or not they're burned out, I still maintain that nobody really thought to include what they're burned out from doing. Because really, when you walk through the building, like the many sort of amazing, like sweeping hallway shots as you're moving through this complex, aside from the doctor's room, which basically looks like a morgue, Like, they've got, like, a morgue there. No other room is a science room. (laughs) Like, they have the common room. You have the communications room where all of the radio equipment is. They reference the map room, which I guess is the room where you keep your maps. I can't remember if when we see Fuchs looking at stuff, if he's in another lab from where they look at it's the same lab. Nope, he's in the same lab. And everything else that you see is either a bedroom or a closet. So, I don't know. If I if I were going back and working on this film, I think maybe that's the only thing I would change. Like, you don't even have to mention what they do. You just have to have a scene where either they walk past or are gathered in a room where it's clear that you do science. You know there isn't have, an autopsy. You know what would have been really cool? And I actually can't believe Carpenter wouldn't have thought of that. And, and if anybody's going to hold us to this and suddenly we're going to find out that after watching this movie between us like 5,000 times, mm-hmm. we never saw it. It seems crazy that in at least one sweep through a room, you never see a table that kind of looks like the things growing in the first one. But not that, but like the idea that there's like maybe hydroponics or something going on that would reference that in some visual way that would look familiar. I'm kind of surprised he wouldn't have done that. Like to say, yes, but we're not doing plants this time, but here's a look at that. But why wouldn't they have a greenhouse there too? Like they can't. Like, there's the part in the, when you get kind of into the paranoia stage where 
I can't remember who it is. Is it Fuchs? Who's like, everyone should prepare their Fuchs. own meals. Joel Paulus, who I always remember as Gary from the Old Town Tavern in Cheers. Had to mention that. Well, Gary from the Old Town Tavern Cheers. <laughs> yeah. He says, I think we should all prepare our own meals and we should only eat from cans. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, in this entire time I've been watching, I haven't seen anything that wasn't in a can. And it's because 90% of what I've seen them consume has been beer. <laughs> but <laughs> there is no food. Like, you, there's never a scene where they're sitting down to a meal. That's true. Like, there's never a time when any of them are eating, even offhandedly. Nobody's just, like, having a peanut butter sandwich. Like, I don't know where the food comes from, and the only thing that comes out of that fridge is beer. It's beer and weed is all we ever see them doing. Yeah. Which is, like, an interesting diet, I guess. So, we, <laughs> we didn't step back. We digress. We digress. <laughs> we didn't step back enough to say, okay, so... In, in comparison to Thing from Another World, this movie arguably is a more faithful rendition of the original Campbell story. It even uses most of the same character names. Some elements of the Who Goes There plot, including the blood test, are from that story. Carpenter uses aspects of that and returns also to the idea that the 51 movie, perhaps a combination of deciding to take it in another direction and perhaps also knowing they would never be able to do justice to the original idea in carpenter's film he goes back to the original idea and who goes there that this is a creature that landed at some point is trying to escape out into the the world of humanity and can do so by absorbing and taking on the form of any human that it comes in contact any living thing that it comes in contact with in fact one thing we paid attention to this time is the fact that when given the opportunity it never does anything with a dead body you have mm -hmm. to be alive for the thing to do what it does but of course what that also means is you never really know if anything you see is what the thing actually is we do not know what the true form of it is because it is always constantly transforming and morphing into something else and as a result you get absolutely insane still to this day never matched practical effects work of the many creatures that the various versions of the thing because also it it manages to separate into several different entities at, at multiple points throughout the story mm -hmm. there's more than one of it transforming bodies in such grotesque and yet also strangely beautiful and and amazingly inventive ways and you get glimpses, and they've talked a lot about this, and I should mention Rob Bottin, the, the mad genius that created all this, also worked on The Howling and other stuff at that time, has basically become a recluse that like never shows up anymore, and I don't know what's going on with that guy. When you watch him in interviews, though, he genuinely seems absolutely insane. Uh, so, Which is something we love. Yeah. <laughs> so, he's weird. Are you weird? Yes, I am. Yes, I am weird. You are weird. Yes. You're weird. Thank God. <laughs> but you get glimpses of things that apparently both he and Carpenter thought fit a like general idea of perhaps what might be going on behind the scenes with the thing. And in some sense, maybe even a little nod to 51, because there's a lot of flower and plant structure. It's still all flesh and and living creatures, but it constantly like creates shapes that look like flowers and petals very venus flytrap yeah and there's that aspect of it and then it also seems to keep falling back on things like really creepy spidery or insect like legs or 
multiple appendages. Some of the stuff in it too, design-wise, is stuff that I often felt as a kid I would be so like horrified and disgusted by. And yet this I can look at a million times over. There's something about it that's so compelling. I think one of the things that's so compelling about it is this idea that it maintains this sort of DNA memory that every time you see it in kind of a chaotic form when something's happening and it's not any one thing in particular, you get this feeling like any life form it has ever imitated, it has the ability inherently within to imitate again. Yeah. And so it's sort of like when you're watching it in transition, it's like spinning a wheel. Like when you spin a wheel at a carnival, it becomes this blur of all the different things on it. And it isn't until it like slows down and rests on the triangle you're going to get that it kind of takes that shape of, oh, this is what it is. And it kind of operates the same way that it's just sort of this collective of ideas of what it could be. And then eventually it kind of settles in. And sometimes they catch it when it's not quite there yet. Um, which I think is also an extraordinary piece of work when it's like almost human, but then has the sort of like giant cockroach claw yeah. things on the hands and looks confused. Like, did I do it? Like, did I get there? And it's like, oh, crap. Like, <laughs> didn't quite nail this one. I don't know what you're saying. That was one of those things out there, trying to imitate him, Gary. And it, it's just such a cool idea of something that can literally be anything it's ever been before. It's not like it's limited by what it's currently copying. It can be anything it's ever copied. And that's sort of limitless, really, when you're thinking about the design and the effects of at any point in time, you could have it do anything. And the argument being this being is hundreds of thousands of years old. And just imagine all of the different alien creatures as well as creatures on earth that it's managed to be. I think my favorite single effect in the whole movie, not that there aren't tons, every moment in it, there's is visually memorable, like a historic moment in horror. I think my favorite, though, is Norris's head going off the side of the desk. And and it's also, by the way, and, and I'm trying to resist this. There's that urge when you know all this stuff and have steeped yourself in it for so long. You want to just retell all the stories they already tell you in the behind the scenes. I'm not the guy that made the movie. So go watch the behind the scenes stuff because it's so much fun to hear all these guys reminiscing about it. But I am also fascinated by the fact that, if I remember right, Botine doesn't like some of the shots in that scene because... When the green stuff that's in the neck is extending, some of it pops because they're pushing air through the hydraulics. And he doesn't like that because he feels it betrays the fact that they're like rubber hoses with pops. But as far as I'm concerned, it's like, that's just what it looks like because it's the thing. Who knows what the hell it's doing? I mean, the thing is, veins are just rubber hoses. Yeah, it's like, I don't care. It looks awesome. And, and, uh, but that's what it's like to be a perfectionist in what you do. But that that Norris's head thing, 
I can't honestly remember. 82 is another one of those years. It's a key year for me. I was just starting to read Famous Monsters, and I was getting it at this pharmacy on Liberty Road where we lived. And one of the first issues I bought, I was so excited because that year Star Trek II was coming out. And Famous Monsters was covering Star Trek II, and I wasn't entirely sure why, except that, oh, well, they cover science fiction too. But then later I would realize there's some pretty horrific stuff in Star Trek II, so it had a cover. But also I was starting to get Fangoria from time to time. And one of the first issues, if not the first issue I ever bought, has Norris's head on the cover. I think if I remember right, I should have looked it up beforehand, but if I remember right, I think the picture is of the head when it's starting to do the thing of shooting the other tongue out to get, and they put that on the cover. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I saw that before I saw the movie. I don't think I saw the movie before I was getting that issue and thinking, that's something I got to see and, and read all about it. And so that I think is why that is burned into my brain. But in, in retrospect, too, the more I watched it, the more I realized just what an amazing piece of work. And like we said, every actor in it, this is Keith David's first, I was just looking again, his first significant film role, and he's amazing in it. And Kurt Russell is on this incredible run at that point where he's becoming, for many of us, like one of our childhood heroes and like one movie after another, you know. And there's just so much great stuff. Wilford Brimley. Everybody in this is great. I could list everybody. They, and they all have moments. That's the other thing. You could probably pick any single character in this movie and find at least one scene that you feel serves them well, gives the actor something to do in a moment you'll remember. Mm -hmm. And that is so rare to have an entire cast well served. Granted, it's relatively contained. But still, everybody gets a line or a moment uh, and, and is memorable. And they're very actualized characters. Like in the same way that they are in the original, you get a feeling of all of them as three-dimensional people. It's not just a character written. They all seem to be very committed to embodying whatever the character traits are for whoever they're playing. I do think that's also part of what makes it feel so real when they start to turn on each other and that's an element you see in this more so than the original adaptation well, yeah. simply because the original adaptation is a vampire story and it's not about shape-shifting right and once you bring the shape-shifting into it they're pretty much ready to go like to turn on each other and the moment that yeah. they think they might be able to figure out you know who's who they almost get there. They almost get it right. They could be anybody's. Nobody... Nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. It is one of the elements that, especially in this watch-through that we just did, one of the things that strikes me, and it's the kind of thing that strikes me in a lot of horror movies when we watch them, when I think, like, why don't you all just sit down in one room, like, now that you know what's what? Like, they've done the blood test, and they have figured out who's the thing, who's not, and also trimmed that list down even more, because when you figure out who's the thing, then it tries to take out who's not. And so that kind of thinned you out a little bit, and you have, like, a manageable group. 
you've got Wolf of Brimley locked in a shack, and the rest of you who have either not been eaten or have tested negative for the thing, why don't you just sit down and wait? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. But they're like, we better get to Wolford's shack so that we can test him. Mm-hmm. And like, then it's chaos again. Yeah, we did. You mentioned at a couple points that like, as much as they make some decent choices most of the time, they they still indulge in the thing that keeps the story like this going, where they make some bad strategic moves. They do going out to test him. I mean, the thing is, here's the thing: is what would happen if they didn't go out to test Blair? We know that Blair at that point or at some point had to. That's the other thing, by the way, to step back again. It's Schrodinger's thing. Well, yeah, they, it's good point. It's it's sort of a game you play no matter how many times you watch this where it was quite deliberately designed to do this by Carpenter and everybody is that you're never really going to be able 100% to figure out who's who when. Some of it you kind of can figure out because you know, like like I remember mentioning one point right before the big couch scene, it's like you know Palmer's already the thing because when that sequence begins, they never leave that room after that point. So obviously he's already it. But you don't know, did was Blair already the thing before they put him in the shack? Because we know that he spends time building an escape ship, and you know that he's the thing. But when did that happen? And then there's also that bit earlier I mentioned where the dog is our, our first incursion of the thing, and it's wandering around. And there's that quick cut scene where he wanders into a room where one of them is sitting there, and you only see the guy in shadow. And if I remember the behind-the-scenes story correctly... That shadow is cast by someone who's not even a cast member, meaning there's no way you can figure out exactly who that is. It's Norris, or it looks kind of like Norris, but we don't know. And so you never really have any idea. And the other fun bit of that is, when we've talked about it a lot, is it does seem sometimes like it's almost suggested that maybe you might be the thing and not know it. Mm-hmm. That, like, while it's... Cause the way Blair's computer simulation shows, it does work on a cellular level. So maybe sometimes it seems to take someone over immediately. Sometimes maybe it hides and slowly works. And maybe Norris is slowly becoming the thing. So we get that heart attack thing at one point where he's like wincing and we know he's going to be. But you wonder how long does it take and how much of you is the thing at any point? It's an interesting transformative process that they take them through. And the fact that none of these questions are definitively answered is kind of the point. Yeah. It's that they can't quite figure it out. We'll never quite know. You know, in the end, it's still not certain what's going to happen. Is this just going to be a cascading effect? Is like, you know, it started at the Norwegian camp nearby and kind of made its way over to the American camp, you know, who's to say that whichever country's camp is the next one down the ice, isn't going to wander back to theirs. And clearly you just need one active cell in order for this to work and to take you over. So no matter what, it's like, it feels inevitable. It feels like inevitably this will work. There will be a time when it works because even the sort of twisted, two-faced, half-realized thing body that was burned at the Norwegian camp that they bring back with them, that still has viable cells in it. Absolutely, sure. And that still 
is able to take over a member of their team. So even if they hadn't brought it back with them, at some point, somebody's going to show up at the Norwegian camp, either because they haven't heard from them for a while, or they're just there to drop off whatever the Norwegian version is of Scotch and Coors Light. And they're going to see that this is all going on, and that's going to give another live host for the thing to get into. So regardless of whether or not they went over there, it's just a matter of time, and it's okay to wait. It literally waited like hundreds of thousands of years in the ice and was fine. So it feels like one of those movies where in the end it's telling you it was always hopeless from the beginning. Everybody was screwed from the start. Mm -hmm. This fits in his Apocalypse trilogy. He's definitive that this is the end of the world in the thing. And it's also the end of the world in the other two, which is Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. And it's also interesting, I was just looking up like, we talked about there's obvious Cold War themes, thing from another world. Arguably in the 80s, you're into another surge in that same kind of paranoia. But it is interesting that I I'd never really come across this before, that some people have delved deeper into the omission of female characters as this movie being an exploration of masculinity and the fear of some of them of developing emotional attachments with other men. And that McCready is kind of standalone-ish in a way, and that that perhaps is why he becomes the final guy, <laughs> you know, in the story in a similar kind of structure from like the slasher movies, which is not something I ever thought of, but it makes sense. And, and we mentioned Lovecraftian earlier. The thing in this movie is definitely in the realm of Lovecraftian. For sure. It has tentacles. It has all the, it has all of the physical attributes very often that are usually associated with Lovecraftian old ones and cosmic monsters. And it features a lot of the same threads of, of storytelling and theme that come up when you deal with the Lovecraftian horror from another realm. And the sound of it when it moves is very bug-like. Yeah. You get that sort of cicada sound to it, that noise whenever it's fluttering all its little tendrils. I wanted to mention, because we briefly talked about the end, and obviously the end is a big thing for a lot of fans because it ends, you got McCready and Childs there. Oh, did I mention spoiler alert? Come on, you've listened to enough episodes by now, surely you know we talk about all of it. You got McCready and Childs at the end, and people have played the game forever of, is either one of them the thing? You know, is the thing still out there? Well, I mean, Carpenter says this is an end of the world movie, so obviously the thing isn't gone. But is one of them the thing? Well, when we get to the prequel, we have a reason for believing that perhaps Childs is not. But I wouldn't count the prequel as a way of evaluating the original film. So you it, don't really know. It's more so, I think the prequel is like a fan retcon. Yeah. But I will note, and I think I only came across it very briefly, there have been a number of attempts to do sequels to this in other media. So for instance, Dark Horse did a comic book with McCready that picked up at the end. And there's also a video game that was done on PlayStation 2 and um, Xbox and I can't remember if one or both of them did it, but I'm pretty sure at least one of those did it where McCready turns out to be the thing, which I am deeply offended by. So <laughs> I don't I don't agree with that. I mean, ultimately, I realized at the end of this one, not that it much matters because they're basically just sitting out in the snow waiting to freeze to death because they've just literally set their entire home on fire. But it occurs to me if there's only two of them left, they could just do the blood test over again yeah, between the yeah. two of them. That's right. And like see if their blood reacts. And I think at that point, 
they're so tired and just so over it that they're like, we're going to die anyway. So if one of us is the thing, like, I guess you win, you'll freeze, they'll find you and this will just keep going. And if we're not, well, not much else I can do because, you know, we're going to die out here. In six hours, it'll be a hundred below in here. Well, that's suicide. Not for that thing. It wants to freeze now. It's got no way out of here. It just wants to go to sleep in the cold until the rescue team finds it. What can we do? What can we do? Whether we make it or not, we can't let the thing freeze again. Maybe we'll just warm things up a little around here. We're not getting out of here alive. But neither is that thing. I'm trying to figure out all this time we're talking about what is it about this movie that makes me so happy. I like I like going back to this one over and over again. I mean, part of it ultimately for me, I guess, there's always a level of if, if you saw something at a certain age, mm. you're nostalgic for it and that'll always work. And for me, that's the case, partly. But it's got to be more than that because there are a lot of movies from that I don't revisit nearly as often. I mean, the soundscape is certainly something that we both like truly enjoy. Like, you mentioned the sound of it. You mentioned how much it was reminding you now of Halloween 3, same year. Mm-hmm. And although Carpenter worked with Marconi on this one, there's a lot of similar sounds. And, you know, Carpenter obviously would have had the sound in mind that he thought was eerie, which ultimately is what he translates into Season of the Witch. Yeah. And what Marconi translates into The Thing. Yeah. I think that that's part of it. I think you and I also just both like, like, familiar contained settings. It's like, even though by the end of it, it's all on fire. <laughs> it's like, we, we know what it looks like. And, you know, we can walk through there yeah, and just sort of like, feel like we're there. And the fact that the characters feel very actualized is sort of a nice way. And also, I think because the thing itself, when you're sort of seeing it in its attack mode, because it is just so surreal and so out there it's just a very comfortable vehicle for sort of like assigning things you're afraid of because there is no real world's like equivalent Mm. of that it's not like it just looks like a giant spider or like it's not that it turns out it's been a snake all along Mm -hmm. or like an ice demon or something that's coming at them It's just so fanciful that there's no way to actually be afraid of it yourself in the real world because there's just no concept of what that is or how it could even exist. I think we've talked about this before, too, but the only parts of this movie that really like completely gross me out or make me have to flinch are the scenes that are close up of the needle going in the arm. And slicing, slicing their thumbs to, to get blood That's for the ins- blood test. How much blood do you need for the blood test? Why do you need to cut your thumb like an orange? I don't understand that. First of all, you just need a pinprick. You just need to do a pinprick. Second of all, literally like most other parts of your hand even would hurt less than your fingertip. It's like Windows, why are you like you just like wiping off the blade on your thigh? And I was like, all right, I'm just going to slice my thumb wide open. For this blood test that requires a drop. 
Jeez, maybe that's why he's a radio operator. He doesn't know the first thing about anything science. Well, he never takes his sunglasses off. So he can't even he, see. He just can't see what's there. I and I will say there are things I never see. I don't know if you notice, but I'm not observant sometimes. What? Yeah. But as many times I've seen this, I still discover new things. And for instance, I never paid much attention to the fact that a lot of fans have. So this is not news to people, a lot of fans probably. That behind McCready during the blood test is that recreation of the 1940s World War II VD poster, where uh, what, what does it say? That something like they're not all labeled, chum. Yeah. And the girl on the poster says, "I have VD," and the and it's the idea of like you know make sure you take a prophylactic with you when you go on leave, and it's like meanwhile that's behind him while he's doing the blood test, and a lot of people also have since pre- predictably pointed out the AIDS parallel mm-hmm. with this and the idea of blood as the medium by which you're determining who's safe and who's not, who you can demonize and who you can't. I was toying with starting this episode by saying something like, you know, we're back and it's been over a month since our last episode, where, which we did around Christmas time. But, you know, now that we're back, it's time to focus on an insidious evil force that lives among us from within can assume human form but quite clearly is incapable of empathy or humanity and is feeding on us and taking over from within and also the movie the thing and that the thing is that was the joke but the idea is again this is a movie that can be equally relevant to today the themes of this creature and the idea that you're in a group of people where the people wearing human faces next to you are also inhuman monsters that share none of your values or thoughts that's just reality. And they're just pretending. They're pretending to, to be human. And mm-hmm. maybe at certain points realize they don't need to pretend anymore. That's pretty relevant. And, and this movie has all that. At a time when that would not have been quite the same kind of thought to explore that thematically. It could definitely resonate, I think, with themes of sort of modern life eroding away people's ability to be empathetic. Mm-hmm. And the loss of empathy is something that has been talked about a lot in the past few years and the past year in particular, simply because we are all starved for human interaction Mm. in some form or another. And in essence, how do you really know the person you're talking to without being able to, I guess, sort of bridge that uncanny valley as you're talking Mm -hmm. about before when you're not actually physically looking at someone to sort of know everything that they're thinking or feeling also kind of interesting in a way you got the blair character i also just was looking up this stuff and saw somebody say they they feel that his character is the linchpin of the lovecraftian way of looking at this movie because of all the characters he's the one that learns the full truth and basically then goes insane from the discovery of it that's very lovecraftian but uh, and i like that idea i never really thought about that but that's that makes sense but also i like the idea that he figures it out i love his whole bit where through him we get the exposition of what the creature can do and what the threat is beautiful way of laying down the premise without needing any character to talk to any other character just do very old school 80s computer graphics and he knows and then he gets you know, some of the best lines that he gets in the movie when he goes crazy. You don't understand? That thing wanted to be us! It's also interesting that somewhere between then and when he's put in the shed or after, he becomes exactly what he's afraid of. But on top of that, 
His desire to save them involves cutting off communication with the world. Like you were just talking about how we're all starved for communication. His only way to try to save the world is destroy the radios, smash the helicopter, do everything possible to isolate them further. That is the only way to save the day. And I'm just constructing this as I'm thinking. But think about the fact that we have an entire group of people in this country and around the world so completely stupid and incapable of helping themselves that they didn't think about the idea that maybe stay in your damn house for a while and you'll live. His idea is isolate and you will live and we'll be able to save people. But nope, it doesn't work out that way. You could hypothetically argue that he's coming up with this theory in the lab of what the thing can do and like how it's going to take over and you see those wheels turning of like world population could be taken over in x number of hours what if he's already the thing at that point and he's using like blair's abilities to figure out how long would it take me to do all of this not how long would it take the thing this other if he's already the thing i mean he's been in the lab space alone probably had the most opportunity to be taken over because ultimately he is building himself a spacecraft in the sub-basement which i don't even know how they have a sub-basement but i don't know much about construction of arctic me neither like when we see the big final thing i was telling you like i I thought it was kind of cool looking it looks like they dig down into the ice to put like the infrastructure that must be how it really works but but what's interesting is that he's been locked in that shack and he hasn't been able to go out the front door he's only tunneled under it and he's had a lot of time in there tunneling under it so ultimately him ripping out all the guts of the helicopter is actually getting him the parts that he needs to build the spaceship. I mean, where do those parts come from? They so came you're... from the helicopter. They came from the tractors. They came from every piece of technology he smashed up. Because if they have the technology to reach out, they also have the technology to bring in an arsenal to try to stop the thing. So if nobody else outside of that group knows what the problem is, then the problem can continue to exist. That's, I never really thought about that before as being that all that activity fits as something the thing might do, not something Blair might do. The thing imitating Blair's Blair. paranoia, but also serving its own interests because either it's going to build that spaceship and get itself away or it can sit in the cold and wait for somebody else to show up. Well, another thing about that that I really love is the idea that it plays on one of the things that I really like about this movie and about the creature in the movie is that the way we get to know this creature in this film specifically, it seems to be a highly intelligent strategic thinker that knows there's a time to show up and spray blood everywhere. And if you're found out, act on it. And there's a time to just really hide and pretend. There are a couple moments where you said, it's like, still it was weird. Like, why really begin at all? Like, why, you know, take the other dogs at the beginning? Why not just stay that dog and be safe? But one thing I suggested was maybe there is still some kind of like biological imperative at work for the creature. Like it needs to spread like I mean, it's operating like a virus does in that its best chance at survival is for the most copies of it to exist as possible so it does make sense yeah but the idea that it's smart enough to know when to hide and to pretend 
And I always like watching David Clennon's part as Palmer, surely our biggest like pothead in the movie. Although we see Charles smoke too. I mean, probably all doing it. I mean, Richard Dysart's Dr. Copper is interesting because I saw it my entire life and only in recent years did I notice that he has the little nose ring on. I started reading articles say he's got that little nose ring he thought he'd throw in. So obviously Copper is not quite as straight-laced as he seems. You know, they're all, they're all probably... They're all slightly smoking. off. Yeah, and uh, but Palmer at a certain point stops being the quippy, you know, chariots of the gods, man, guy. And I feel like he's probably one of the only characters in the movie where you can probably pretty assuredly map when it might have happened. Because mm. he starts playing them. Like the whole scene where McCready's outside and he starts saying, you know, open the door. We can blast him. And Child's like, why are you so quick to want to open the door? And Palmer's like, because maybe it's the only chance we have. And I'm thinking that doesn't sound like the same guy who was just sitting there in a haze of weed you know he seems very sharp in a way what i would argue is this is also one of the key reasons why if not offended i'm at least deeply disappointed in the people that thought they were fans crafting the prequel because the behavior and attitude of the creature that we meet that's supposedly the creature before the events of this film does not match Mm -hmm. the creature in this film who seems to be very keen on strategy and know how to weave in and out of a situation and when necessary, burst into latex and caro syrup. <laughs> you know as well as I do, there are too many variables. Open your mouth. Open your mouth! 2011 movie, The Thing, was written and directed by people that were fans of the 82 film, had apparently, while trying to get a project going to work on, had basically found out that the studio wanted to do a remake again of The Thing. What they managed to sell the studio on was, don't do a remake, let us do a prequel that pays respect to The 82 Thing, because they didn't want to reinvent the wheel on that one. And it's like, instead, let's add our notes to it and, and do a prequel that follows the events in the Norwegian camp that we get a glimpse of in the 82 film that clearly was the beginning of this whole incident. It's not a horrible idea, although the idea of prequels in general, I think we've both talked about quite a bit, are usually kind of creatively bankrupt as an idea. It feels unnecessary to know how something started sometimes when you know exactly where it's going to end, which is a helicopter chasing a husky across the tundra and there's not much more to be learned and as i was intimating in the previous segment one of the biggest issues i have with this is that the thing in this film is much more in behavior like a traditional slasher antagonist it seems most often to completely miss opportunities to hide and instead to to actively attack and murder nearly everyone that it comes into contact with. Now, you could argue that since it's a prequel, this is his first experience with humans out of the ice, and it learns through this experience to play it a little quieter next time, but eh. I mean, I too know what it's like to try to get something done after you've just woken up and you haven't had (laughs) any coffee yet. So it's like... Okay, maybe it's like it has been in the ice for like a hundred thousand years, 
And it's like, it's just getting up and it's kind of forgetting all the things it's supposed to do because it's been a while. I guess really one of the things we talked about watching it is that the only thing you could maybe argue is that that pays an homage to both previous versions in that it feels kind of like stories where a vampire has just woken up from a long time and has to kind of stumble around and has trouble like finding that first blood in order to get their strength and their vigor back. And so there's a little bit of that where it's like just got up, not quite myself yet. By myself, I mean literally anyone. And so I guess that sort of explains it, but it does feel like it's a different creature. Unnecessary is certainly a good way to put it for most of these kind of projects. And and I respect the fact that the people involved truly did feel affection for the 82 movie. They really wanted to do this right. And there's a lot of stuff in this movie that shows that the thought there was genuine and heartfelt. So much of the set design, like the one of the ones that's most immediately recognizable is the room with the ice block where the thing is and the little half steps that go down. That's perfect looking. They know they have to set up things because this basically, like you just said earlier, this ends with the dog running and, and we're going right into, you can watch these two in a row, which we tried to do. And at least we watched them. We watched these in the order chronologically. So we watched this one first. I'd, I'd always wanted to at least see this one. I've only ever seen this one once before, so I wanted to see it before we watched the 82 again. And we thought about watching them back-to-back chronologically, but ultimately about 60% of this movie I couldn't watch because the camera shook so much that I got so motion sick that we were like, no more movies tonight. That's another thing, is that this movie has that horrific tendency to just keep the camera moving in still, in still quiet scenes of just exposition and dialogue between characters standing still in a room. The camera never stops moving, and I do not understand that. It was making me crazy. Like I was saying, it knows it has to set things up, and they really try. They want to put that axe in the wall. They want to make sure the guy who slashed his wrist is sitting there. They want to make sure it ends with that helicopter and two guys that look like the same two guys in the helicopter with their grenades and the husky. Ultimately, the biggest problem in this movie, and one thing I'll also say is watching it this time, so only the second time I've ever seen it, it's not really all that bad. It's not like a horrific disaster of a film. It does feel ultimately pointless. But I think the biggest problem with this movie was all these people involved had their hearts in the right place. And then the studio got shy about one of the things they were very adamant about, which is we wanted to maintain practical effects in this film so that it looked similar to what Rob Bottin did in 82. And then the studio in post-production was like, you know what, let's replace all of it instead with some of the worst CGI that we could possibly do in 2011, including replacing a key third act reveal with literally what looks like Tetris blocks in a pixelated column because they just want to cover something in the scene that they didn't want to acknowledge. It was atrocious and that destroys what chance this movie has to be successful. I was horrified when I saw a YouTube video of like test shots with the puppet that they had built practically to essentially be the previous pilot pilot, of this ship that the thing had already taken over that ship and all the tests of them moving it around and having it fall off and break apart and have elements come out. And it looked 
cool. There's also a great video of them with the full puppet version of the split head face mm-hmm. that was done with like skin over top of teeth that's like melting and it it looks fantastic. And it in- doesn't look as good as Botine's stuff. Even even decades later, it's still not as good as what he did then, but it's it looks right. It looks like it fits. Yeah, and instead essentially what they did is the movie version of that, like, lady in a small village who was like, I can just take this uh, old painting and I'll just spruce it up myself. <laughs> and then you yeah. get that, like, melty Jesus thing <laughs> that she was like, ta-da! That's right. The 2011 thing is melty Jesus. <laughs> and who needs that? I mean, ultimately, if somebody could run this movie through a stabilizer, I think it'd be interesting to watch it through one more time unfortunately i don't think i could ever even try to watch it again the shaking camera is just so bad and in scenes where they're standing still it's still shaking and that to me is like such a sin like i don't understand it does not increase the tension it just makes me want to puke one thing about this that was kind of intriguing was the way in which as a prequel it also gets the opportunity to pay homage tries to pay homage to both previous versions Mm -hmm. there are more things in this movie that feel deliberately connecting back to 51 than even 82 in the sense first of all that the plot of the 82 thing kind of happens after some of the uh, similar events that happened in 51 because they find the thing in 51 in 82, our group is coming in after a previous group has found it. They live next door to the guys who found yeah. the thing. So like Carpenter had his homages to 51 by having the Norwegians on the videotape do the thing circling around the flying saucer the way they did in 51, like spreading out, you know, the holy cat scene that's in Halloween. Holy cat. Hey. It's almost... Yeah. Almost a perfect... It is. It's round. We finally got one. We found a flying saucer. And by the way, going back to 82, one of the things you mentioned that I loved was you said there was that great mirroring of that when they gather around Bennings, when they burn him in there around the circle again. Yeah, they circle him when they set him on fire. Yeah, beautiful shot. And this one gets to do that. So there are more elements of 51, including the, the main scientist in this, who's very similar to Carrington in 51 as a guy who has decided science is more important than his humanity. And that's a lot of the same beats. And this one also brings women back into it in a, it's similar to 51 with our lead being Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character, Kate, and uh, one other character. And there were two women in 51. Mm-hmm. So. so there's like there are elements of this that feel like they're pulling from both. And also a bit of Alien because... They actually said they wanted Winstead to be, like, in the Ripley mold. Yeah, there's a bit of a Ripley vibe that you get from her kind of trying to take charge and a lot of people, like, not taking her seriously until finally she's like, screw it, I'm in charge. Yeah, and and by the way, that's one of the things I like in that it also mirrors the moment, one of the many moments I love in 82, where McCready basically becomes the leader when Gary gives up the gun. And it's like, yeah, I'm getting, we all know that I'm the leader already. And she's kind of like that. She has her moment. And also the alien connection comes in because we never have before gone into that ship in either previous film. Mm -hmm. This one we do. And that pilot would have been, I'm sure, that team's sort of homage to finding the pilot and alien also. Very much so. I would say, for me, the only plot 
element to this movie that I genuinely found interesting and exciting as a concept is the fact that they figure out that the thing cannot replicate inorganic material. Meaning whatever metal might be in your body, it cannot replicate. Because the first time they're doing this autopsy and it has absorbed one of the team, they find a titanium rod. And they say, yeah, he'd broken his leg at some point. He had a rod put in there. And sort of two and two together, you don't need the blood test in this one. She comes up with the very quick and no need to slice a fingertip version, which is shine a flashlight in someone's mouth and look for their fillings. Yeah. It's pretty genius. It also makes for a pretty great reveal at the end when she realizes someone that she's with is actually a thing. I like that scene. I think there's nothing in the 82 movie that contradicts the idea of the metal or extraneous object. thing. Because the thing is, copper has the nose ring, but we never see copper assimilated before no because he just gets killed he gets killed and that he never plays into it again and then this is what i mentioned earlier there are people that always play the mccready childs game at the end apparently childs has an earring i've never paid much attention you said that to me and i didn't notice it at this walkthrough but maybe it's very tiny they say he's wearing an earring that you can see when he leans in for the bottle or something and that would be if you were going to believe the 2011 one counts, then that would be a reason to say that he's all right. I mean, there's a lot of movies that I say I like them for what they wanted to be and not what they ended up being. This one I want to like for what it wanted to be, but I don't quite. And I think it puts it into a slightly different category. They really lovingly recreated the set. They came up with an interesting idea with the metal but beyond that it wasn't a story that needed to be told because you're just not getting anything new out of the experience one more thing about the thing just one more thing one more thing it's like colombo oh listen just one more thing i mean quite literally maybe one more thing in that the whole time we had it on i was like I really hate movies that just introduce you to these main characters that you know will be dead by the end of it. And I pointed out to you that Kate kind of, we don't know what happens to We Kate. don't know. Because it's like, to me, I'm like, well, if this is supposed to roll right into the 82, the thing, your only survivors are the thing as dog and two Norwegians in a plane. And the two Norwegians in the plane get accidentally exploded slash shot in the face. And the dog thing goes on many adventures many adventures and maybe we'll one day even be a dog again who knows and that's your cast of characters except that they leave it kind of open and that she knows that the russian camp is in the other direction which if i remember correctly is never mentioned in d82 thing i mean it makes sense it's like they're all probably spaced out at certain intervals and lots of countries have their camps there And she's just alone in Antarctica in a snowstorm. She's a paleontologist. She's not, you know, a mechanic. And if anything goes wrong with this vehicle, she's like dead in the snow. But she just turns the windshield wipers on and thinks, all right, what do I do next? But there's no telling if she's going to try to get to that next camp and survive or is she the thing 
Although I guess if she were the thing, she wouldn't have set the other thing on fire. Yeah, I don't think so. And I don't think we'd be with her like in an audience point of view way quite in the same way. Yeah. I'm thinking, one of the things I'm always terrible at is keeping track of how time is moving in a movie, which frequently it doesn't play fair with you anyway. Mm -hmm. But I'm usually terrible at knowing, like, oh, how many days... Some people just have an inherent sense of that. Like, here's how many days this story takes place in. So what I'm thinking is, since this the prequel continues directly into 82, how many days does the 82 one take place in... And although obviously this is not something that could ever be accomplished with the actors now, it would have to be done like in a comic or anime or something, would it be possible for Kate to show up when McCready and Childs are there and drive up in the thing in the the truck and it's like, I've been looking for a place and suddenly we have the union of our heroes from both movies. Would there be enough time? Possibly because the find, like where the spaceship is, is a trek out, like from the Norwegian camp in the opposite direction, away from the Americans' camp. Yeah. So hypothetically, the next closest camp is the Russians' camp, which he's saying is like 50 miles or something. Yeah. If you keep going away from the ship. But if she instead drove back in the direction of the Norwegian camp, past the Norwegian camp, towards. The U.S. camp. I'm thinking gets lost and then. Either gets lost or thinks, why go to the Russian camp? I'm an American. I'll go to the American camp. And maybe she knows that that's, you know, in the other direction. In which case you could hypothetically like have her rocking up there and seeing the destruction and asking to look inside Kurt Russell's mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And then off we go again. Mm -hmm. And and the title would be something like, and another thing. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Litovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at nblitovsky, that's nblitovsky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were The Thing, from Another World, 1951, The Thing, 1982, and The Thing, 2011. Well, two out of three ain't bad. Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com.